You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. Today I have with me Dr. Jan Mazurik, a senior director at Climate Works Foundation. Jan, you lead the Carbon Dioxide Removal Fund there. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure, Ross. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to have you. It's been a long time coming. I am happy that you have such an illustrious career in climate and also in carbon removal. Sometimes people think of Nori as being involved in carbon removal for a long time, but it's only been a few years and maybe just carbon removal has grown so much in the last couple. But I think you've been there basically since it really began. Is that a correct understanding? I think we're temporally pretty well synced up. Right around the time of the Paris COP, uh, I think everyone saw that in order to stay within sustainable temperature bounds, um, we needed to start thinking seriously about carbon removal. And I must also tip my hat to Noah Deitch and Gianna Amador, as well as Julio Friedman. They have been our trusted advisors and partners from the start. Okay, well, fair enough. And they've all been on the podcast as well at this point. It's about time you had me on the show. <laughs> Getting the gang together. Right. Yeah. Well, how did you find your way into carbon removal? What has your career been like? Well, I started oof, a very long time ago. Next year marks my 30th year in the climate and energy space, uh, mostly in nonprofits in DC. I like to refer to myself as a has-been. But I'm one of those people who spent the early part of my career working on carbon pricing systems, both in Congress, as well as here in California, where uh, former carb chair Nichols brought me into the Air Resources Board to help implement AB 32, which is not just carbon pricing, but a whole suite of other measures. Although there are any number of states, as well as uh, national level, as well as multi, you know, multi-nation trading system regimes, They've been a little bit late in coming and haven't been sufficiently ambitious. And so in addition to taking emissions to zero with pricing mechanisms and standards and other regimes, we now find ourselves in the unenviable position of having to remove carbon from the atmosphere as well as eliminating emissions. So you're saying it's your fault that we have carbon removal? It is. Removal? It is. I, it yeah. is entirely my fault. I <laughs> I worked on systems that, uh, for whatever reasons, uh, resulted in big collective action problems and free ridership problems. So, yes, it's my fault. And so it's a per- it's entirely appropriate now that I'm working on the removal piece. I'd love to hear more about that. What kind of collective action problems and free ridership problems did you encounter? And how might someone working in this space now try to avoid that? And I realized that is an entire show on its own, really. (laughs) It's a great question. And somebody actually very, very smart in the UK during a webinar earlier this morning sort of posed the same question. It's like, if we can't get all nations to agree to join in a global carbon pricing system where we impose a price on fossil-laden fuels and reward fossil-free endeavors? What makes us think that we can somehow um, create a commensurate system for removal, which because although there's excess CO2 in the atmosphere, it's much more diffuse and takes a lot more energy to try to pull it back down to earth than just capturing it at the sort of end of pipe flue gas stream. What makes us think that we're going to be more successful at that? And <laughs> my, my short answer is that I tend to be a bit of an optimist. And I look at what people said 30 and 40 years ago about solar and what they said about EVs. And now, you know, Musk oscillates as being one of the wealthiest people in, in the world because he's designed something fabulous that people want to drive. And it has the added benefit of not releasing any tailpipe emissions. And I, I'm i not going to say that that society should innovate its way out of problems, because sometimes when we innovate, we create new problems for ourselves, right? You know, fossil eliminated uh, horse manure on the streets created climate change in the process. But that being said, when I look at people such as Noah Deitch and Gianna Amador and their patron, Matt Rogers, who invented the Nest Thermostat, 
I am eternally optimistic. And I think one of the great things about carbon removal that we don't talk about very often is that we can create carbon to value. And I know that's a topic that's very popular among uh, your listeners and many are engaged in that, but it's a narrative that I find creates a lot of hope for people that we can bring CO2 back down to earth and either lock it up permanently or that we can turn it into really you know cool things. That's not carbon uh, negative, it's sort of carbon circular. But it makes people feel much more in control of a problem that otherwise seems almost hopeless to solve. Is a way of perhaps generalizing out from that entrepreneurship and technological development is a potential solution to the collective action problem space for policy? Yes, it is. It's it's one of many, but yes, it is. And, you know, another is a very rich innovation environment. And of course, I've, you know, lamented for years the fact that the U.S. spends more on potato chips than it does on RD&D. And there is that big valley of death. But I'm cautiously optimistic now that this new incoming administration, particularly looking at the new Biden-Harris budget numbers, and I will flag an excellent blog that uh, Gianna published today on it, um, recognizes the importance of supporting early stage technologies such as direct air capture to bring them down the cost curve. But I think, you know, government RD&D, as well as entrepreneurship are two pathways that have incubated any number of great breakthroughs. And I'm cautiously optimistic that we can do the same here. We've had so many pessimists on lately, Jan. So thanks for sticking your neck out. (laughs) I'm usually a Debbie Downer. I don't know. Yeah, we, we've been wanting to do an episode about what is happening with the Biden administration and carbon removal. This might be a good chance for us to open that topic up some. What are you seeing? Well, I'm absolutely delighted that so many of our top former grantees and thought partners and others have been uh, appointed to really important posts in the Biden administration. And I won't say that that has anything to do with their affiliation as former grantees of Climate Works. I think it's just that they were standouts in the field to begin with. But it's it's delightful to see them sprinkle throughout the Biden-Harris administration and creating a whole of government approach to thinking about removal. Let's uh, let's talk about the American Jobs Plan and what what we're seeing in there. What you're looking forward to? I saw some good things about 45Q in there. Yes, you know, we're very optimistic about 45Qs. And, you know, so we can talk about sort of executive branch action. We can talk about uh, developments on the Hill. I think in sort of looking at the Biden Harris climate agenda as a whole, first you have to look at the executive orders that came out in January, the most recent stimulus that was passed the December stimulus, which contained all kinds of fabulous provisions for direct air capture, even though it was still the Biden-Harris transition at the time, the American Jobs Plan, and then most recently, the Biden budget. And when you look at those things, those, those measures as a whole, they are poised to make historic strides on climate writ large, particularly climate mitigation, but also elevating justice and labor as part and parcel of climate progress in a way that I've, I've never seen before. So that's historic. Uh, but I also think that it's, you know, it's very remarkable putting the executive orders aside to look at the degree of ambition coming out of DOE. And I don't think that's a coincidence. They have their first female deputy in the Office of Fossil Energy, uh, Dr. Jen Wilcox, who's magnificent. And we've seen announcements already out of DOE for $100 million for deep decarbonization and advanced technologies as well as $24 million for director capture applications that use less energy. And as Gianna notes in her most recent blog, the Biden budget has also proposes additional funding for the Office of Fossil Energy, as well as a name change to the Office of Fossil Energy and Carbon Management and funding specifically for DAC. So that's very exciting. But you know, the technological side of removal is just one part of the equation. We're Very excited to see Robert Bonney back at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. He's a thought leader in the space of carbon removal on the land side, but he comes at it with a jobs lens primarily. So we're super excited to see $161 million there 
for potential funding to make sure that the carbon that we're both mitigating and or avoiding as well as removing from soil is more accurately measured, reported, and verified. Uh, That's very, very important and, and also demonstrates how the U.S. can model leadership in going into the international discussions on the NDC side. We have really good confidence about how much we can do on the energy side to meet our Paris commitments, but the natural side of the equation is always beset by greater scientific uncertainties about how much you're storing and removing. I'll just pause there for now, but uh, we're also very excited about the appointments at the Department of Interior. We see our partners uh, on tribal lands as vital to carbon removal, as well as attendant co-benefits in the form of greater forest health and greater soil health. I did notice this, and oftentimes there's a split between these two camps of industrial carbon removal and ecological, but it seems like the Biden administration is very all of the above, which makes me wonder if that is actually true and what actually is not included in all of the above within their carbon removal plans. They just made a very, very important appointment on oceans, but our newest area at Climate Works of exploration. And again, we're not necessarily proponents, but we we want to make sure that, you know, when and where removal happens, it's very thoughtful and that the opportunities outweigh the challenges. And so as many of your listeners probably know, and you must also know, Ross, as we become more successful in removing carbon with technology and with trees and soils, unfortunately, the ocean has been storing up a surplus of CO2 and it's going to give some of that back. And it's also suffering greatly from that additional CO2 in the form of acidification, which harms shellfish and other marine life and inevitably will also alter human livelihoods. Well, Jan, I thought you were supposed to be the optimist here. (laughs) But I'm waiting and hopeful that the Biden, although the Biden administration, I think, has a very deep bench of talent both on the technological side and the natural side in the administration. We're also hoping to see equal levels of ambition on the ocean side, hopefully also around ocean removal. Climate Works has been funding the National Academy of Sciences to complete a workshop on ocean CDR. And we're very much looking forward to that publication uh, as a way of uh, calling attention to that important topic as well. Yeah, I can't wait to read that. That's fascinating. I think for listeners, they probably know about the basics of blue carbon. We did an episode on whale carbon once upon a time. <laughs> that one's great. we've also done, you know, mangroves. I think people know about kelp farming and marine permaculture. But I think there are also some new industrial technologies for ocean capture that are coming down the pike. Is that right? Well, I like to think of them as natural because, you know, the way that the earth and the oceans have managed the ocean's pH, um, and I like to think of it as, you know, the ocean is kind of analogous to, you know, human blood pH because it's where ultimately life all kind of came from. But as rocks that are highly basic erode from rainfall, they, I'm oversimplifying, but, you know, they wash out to sea. And there's a very complex mixing process that takes place, but that material buffers the oceans in the same way that taking a Tums helps to reduce a tummy ache when when one has ingested too much lemonade or something. And there are, uh, at least theoretically, approaches to accelerate that process. But in order to think about whether or not those approaches are going to be safe, It's important that academics in particular uh, start to undertake any number of studies to see what happens when you accelerate that buffering process. That being said, I will say that many oyster hatcheries along the Pacific coast already buffer the water because otherwise the oyster shells will dissolve and we're already seeing those effects of acidification in the Dungeness crab populations along the west coast of California. So the ocean is becoming increasingly acidic owing to increasing CO2 levels. 
there are natural processes that can address that. There are already some commercial processes, as I mentioned, in oyster hatcheries that need to be done to apply to that. So one can set up experiments using oyster hatcheries, for example, as a way of seeing whether there are any unexpected challenges to marine life that occur from these processes. But as many listeners and Ross, you also know, there, there are some companies that are you know, going out and, and looking to olivine approaches. And that is something that we're, we're still several steps behind and funding basic academic research to look what happens to the marine aquatic life when you accelerate this natural process. Fantastic. I know there's a lot of work to be done just on the basic research side on so many things within carbon removal. Is there not an analogous process happening in the oceans with direct air capture? Is there anyone working on large machines that separate carbon dioxide from, I guess, ambient water? What, what even is the term for that? It doesn't make sense in a non <laughs> no, no. I've often wondered about that. Is that direct air capture if it's from the sea? And I know under the Sea Fuels Act, the Navy in particular had been exploring that as an approach, I believe, in a way that's kind of analogous for the long-haul aviation industry and thinking about extracting that CO2 and converting it into a fuel. And so there's the Sea Fuels Act. I am not directly aware of other approaches to directly remove CO2 from seawater, but I'm, I'm certain that there are any number and, and listeners are probably aware of those. But I, that is an area that we haven't yet moved into in our ocean CDR strategy, just because it's hard enough to get our arms and minds around ocean alkalinity enhancement. There's a nice little video explainer on our website that we've developed for that approach. And we're also looking at the phenomena of growing additional seaweed. And the question there being, does it really sink down to the bottom of the sea and store the carbon as it needs to, or does it dissipate and not achieve that effect? So we're, we're looking at seaweed and ocean alkalinity enhancement first and foremost, and then we'll look to the other ocean approaches as time and resources permit. Is the jury still out for you about sinking kelp to the seafloor? Um, you know, we, we have a very deep bench of, of experts who, um, are, as one might expect, divided on that question. And some say, yes, it does sink and permanently stay down there. And, and others are still wondering about the economics of how one does that cost effectively. But the science isn't in, in question so much as the economics of it making sense. Uh, I think I think there are still very open questions around both and more funding research to get greater clarity into both. Hmm. And making the ocean more basic, as opposed to pulling CO2 out, are you adding some basic materials into the ocean? That's right. That's okay. right. So, you know, I mean, you know, Stripe is funding Project Vesta to look yeah. at the olivine beach approach. And there, we're just funding basic science using one of the green sand beaches in Hawaii, as well as natural upwelling in the Santa Barbara Channel. So we're not creating an experimental intervention. We're just kind of using nature and looking to see whether enhancing alkalinity has any effects on mesocosms in the sea. Hmm. And you're saying in the Biden administration's plans overall, oceans haven't yet featured prominently, at least compared to terrestrial um, or industrial. Okay. That's right. And that's not surprising. It's a very novel approach. We started off this session by talking about how four years feels like an eternity in carbon removal. But I would say that, you know, with respect to oceans and the need to think about removal there, uh, for most of us, that's been a probably a one and a half year endeavor that we've had to you know stand up very quickly but you know the administration has uh, appointed distinguished Oregon State University professor and former head of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration Jane Lubashenko to uh, a prominent position so I think that's a very hopeful start my layperson understanding of this this very well might be not true and perhaps you can tell me if it is or not but the ocean is a more dynamic environment than a terrestrial <laughs> one and, right. and is thus potentially harder to measure and quantify. Also, though, I'm coming from a place of working on soil for the last couple of years. Yeah. Also not easy. So no, 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 it's not. I, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. The ocean is so incredibly dynamic. 
you know, one could spend uh, hundreds of millions of dollars on academic research and still not settle all of the questions that need to be settled. And that is beyond climate philanthropies, uh, resource capabilities, and, and something that we hope, you know, Congress in coming appropriation cycles will think about supporting. Hmm. There's a chance that that alienates potentially more conservative, otherwise supporters of something like this, or it gets enough buy-in from everyone because jobs and dealing with longstanding issues could potentially be popular. How do you think this will play out? I think if we're very thoughtful about the political economy of carbon removal, that it creates a win-win for everyone. And so on the natural side, we've been very cautious in our grant making to lead with rural resilience as opposed to climate or carbon removal, because that's the frame that landowners, land stewards, tribal communities care about. (laughs) They care about jobs and they care about food security and they care about viable uses of potentially uneconomic trees for mass timber. And on the technological side, uh, our grantees have done, I think, a masterful job of working in close partnership with steelworkers and other unionized groups to think about the potential job benefits of uh, scaling a director capture industry, for example. So again, I think if, if it's approached in a thoughtful way, it could be very powerful. You know, one of the things that we like to talk about in California is, yes, you know, let's uh, keep fossil in the ground, but let's put those fossil workers to work, taking carbon out of the air and putting it back in the ground where it belongs. Hmm. You think that the focus on jobs and jobs seems like the top level keyword that I'm picking up in a lot of this Biden administration chatter that is maybe a unifying approach to many of these things. That's how I see it. Uh, To me, if it, (laughs) I spent, I I kind of cut my teeth in Washington for many, many years working for someone who now is back in the Biden White House who coined the popular Clinton era phrase, it's the economy stupid. And, you know, I I still- Raging Cajun by chance? (laughs) If um, people can't meet basic needs and have secure, well-compensated employment, it's very, very hard to get their attention around any other top and pressing priorities, including climate. Hmm. Insofar as you can say, have the experiences that you've had with unions been supportive of a transition like this? You know, on the director capture side, absolutely. I think our grantees have done um, masterful work in creating partnerships with various union groups. And I think that that is unique because one of the challenges that we encountered uh, eight years ago with that round of stimulus is, is that historically, at least the wind and solar jobs, solar in particular, have been less unionized. Whereas if one were to build out you know, a direct air capture ecosystem, uh, one would imagine that, that steel workers and pipe fitters and other traditionally unionized industries would potentially stand to benefit. And there's a very nice rhodium study that quantifies job creation potential. There was a, a really super uh, panel that took place uh, yesterday, I think, by uh, the Energy Futures Initiative with former Energy Secretary Moniz and, our, and a deep, deep bench of, of union and other representatives on the innovation agenda. And uh, so I'm hopeful. What do you think are some of the lessons from, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Jan, but I think since Kyoto or Inconvenient Truth or some of those earlier, at least for my generation, climate moments, what went wrong during those times or wasn't successful enough such that we're here now? And what should we learn from that time period and moving forward? Oh, that's a great question. It's, it's one that keeps me up at night, having lived through those times as well, as well as, you know, being at the epicenter of trying to create a, an economy-wide price on carbon and watching it ultimately, that moment evaporate. Yeah, sorry, I didn't ask you an easy one. No, no. Uh, I don't want well, someone asking me this in 20 years. So. Yeah. No. I mean, I. You know. Uh, you know. Clearly, at the end of the day, it comes down to who pays and who benefits. I think carbon removal may be one of those opportunities where 
you know, the global north probably will need to bear the cost of creating the tools and rules to pull carbon back down out of the atmosphere and then deploy at much lower costs since it bought these approaches down the cost curve, whether they're MRV for soil or the price of direct air capture so that they're available to the whole world. But also I can envision a system where, you know, those who emitted most mitigate the most and also bear the share of, of removal. It has eternally sort of split over that question of who emitted the most and who is most responsible for both eliminating and mitigating emissions, but now also removing them. Yeah, that's a hard question. It seems like the common sense justice concern is that if you make a mess, you should be the one to clean it up. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. And I, we've done okay on you know bringing dramatically down the cost of wind and solar in part because our partners in, in China did a very, very good job of driving down the cost of solar panels. But here in the United States and in Germany, we adopted feed-in tariffs and renewable portfolio standards. And uh, I, I'm very optimistic that we could do the same thing with carbon removal. And once we drive down the costs of those rules and tools, it makes it much more palatable for you know the public sector to then implement programs and policies to bear the cost of that. Mm. My admittedly basic understanding of the solar cost curve is that Germany's various types of subsidies really helped that go in addition to basic research from the US and elsewhere. Is that broadly what happened? And you think something similar might happen for developing carbon removal technologies in the US? I hope so. You hope so? Okay. Yeah. And then with research like this being done, funded by the government, does it typically come out as uh, non-proprietary? Anyone can use it and build a business around it? Or is that understanding wrong? I think that understanding is correct. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the interesting thing, and I don't want to oversimplify this and Julio Freeman and Jen Wilcox and others, um, you know, can do a much better job of this. But I think, you know, one of the beauties of carbon removal is that it's fairly low tech, right? I mean, uh, you know, a director capture can be dry sorbent, can be wet sorbent. There are advances that we can make on, you know, the sorbent materials and chemistries. Uh, we can certainly figure out much better ways to make them use less energy. Energetically, it takes a lot of power to pull something that's very diffuse in the atmosphere into a filter where it's trapped. But this isn't a fusion reactor, right? <laughs> and trees are very basic technology. The soil issue is tough just because soil, the heterogeneity issues of soil varying from one, one meter to the next. But these are all sort of surmountable. They're not wickedly hard problems. And so the point of that is that I'm, you know, I'm not convinced that there are that many breakthroughs that we need. I think we mostly on the land side, there are going to be some very thorny governance questions associated with the amount of trees we need to reforest and aforest and how that collides with other land uses, such as farming or indigenous dwellings. On the technological side, there are going to be governance issues as well, to be sure. But as I said, you know, these are lower tech relative to, to some other types of applications. And so I think that we can drive the cost down primarily by scaling and learning by doing. You're making me feel so good right now with this <laughs> not being a wicked problem or a set of wicked problems, <laughs> not that many breakthroughs required. God, we have had so many doer shows lately, Jan. This is feeling like a breath of fresh air. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Given that you've worked so much on carbon pricing, the hope of a carbon tax or a fee and dividend was that this would be um, use the best of the market and prices to, to get action on climate. It would be appealing to people who are more right of center. It would also have climate impacts, which would be conventionally left of center. But some people worried that it wouldn't have enough buy-in. There's not this focus on jobs and equity that I think the Biden administration is really trying to get enough like uh, emotional attachment almost. Carbon pricing seems really thin and almost something that an economist would like but maybe the average person finds alienating. And <laughs> You've been talking to people inside the, you know, <laughs> but yeah, that's I'm right. I, wildly, but do you, what do you think about that? Is that right? 
I think that carbon pricing is not in vogue in the United States, to be sure. And I also believe that because justice groups were not brought to the table early on in some places around discussions uh, pertaining to offsets, that was a dreadful, dreadful missed opportunity. And it has cast a shadow over carbon pricing efforts. I think there's also um, a sense that a carbon price is inadequate to drive deep decarbonization. And I think what that means is that if you have a carbon price, you have to set it very, very high to incent the types of things that we need. I mean, if you took away 45Q and the low carbon fuel standard, you'd have to set a price of $600 a ton to do DAC, right? Carbon pricing has this Goldilocks problem. No one wants the price to go too high. No one wants the price to go too low. So you have to bring in all these other quote unquote complementary measures as we do in California. We have a low carbon fuel standard. We have a price on carbon. We have any number of other approaches designed to incent deployment of technologies such as EVs, wind and solar. So carbon pricing is not having a moment in the United States, but it is the EU ETS has just entered its second phase, incorporating lessons learned from initial design challenges. You know, China is going doubling down on uh, carbon pricing. And so I'm not advocating for carbon pricing, but I think a challenge is that in the absence of a price, I see the debate in the climate community as devolving into Madisonian factions. And so we have these groups that champion one form of technology or one form of removal approach over others. And it's just a waste of time and energy as far as I'm concerned. We need everything. And we have to stop fighting each other over whether natural is better than technological, whether certain types of natural removal approaches are superior to others. And it's just such a waste. It's like, and it's a distraction from actually making progress on the climate challenge. The clock is ticking. Wow. Did you just complain about the fights over industrial versus ecological carbon removal and bring up the Federalist Papers in a single comment? (laughs) Are you just pandering to me slash our audience now? (laughs) Sorry. So I think that's what you lose when you have a price on carbon because the price sort of make it's, it's technology agnostic. And if you take that away, then, then you get into these endless spats on Twitter and elsewhere. We tried to rise above it. We've started with soil for our first methodology with U S croplands, but we ultimately want to support carbon removal so long as it's ethical and credible. And we want to support methodologies all from many, many, many different places I don't know. How should we be thinking about that? It sounds like you're validating our instincts a little bit to stay out of some of these fights because they do get quite nasty and I'm not always sure how productive they are. Exactly. I mean, I just think we need everything and the kitchen sink at this point. (laughs) I just really do think it is a waste of time and everyone's energy to argue about it. And I think sometimes it may be masked as a time and resource question. I think people worry that if too much attention is paid to removal, then mitigation will suffer. If too much attention is paid to renewables, then preserving the existing nuclear fleet will suffer. And again, we need all of it. (laughs) And I feel fairly optimistic that if we put our minds to something, such as a vaccine for COVID, we can get it done in a fairly short timeframe. We just demonstrated that. And I feel the same. That should be the one great takeaway for the climate challenge. You say that, but I saw a meme the other day that had a West Side Story photo and said, when the Moderna gang sees the Pfizer boys or something. (laughs) (laughs) There is something about that, though. I think I usually attribute this more to humanity than to the actual arena in which this it's is not the technology first. it's us you know yeah, we, we like very teams clever. Yeah. we're yeah. very very clever and i always like to think back to you know 2001 and the bone it can be a tool it can also be a weapon but you know we figured out how to pick up and use it so that we could eat but then we also learned how to whack each other over the head with it and i'm not a technological optimist i'm a humanist interesting What do you think is going to happen in the next couple of years? Any wild, irresponsible predictions you'd like to make? (laughs) Well, in the next couple of years, 
I feel as though we could go into international conversations with renewed ambition around the urgency of these problems. I've been in this environmental space, as I said, almost 30 years. And so when I started, I focused mostly on traditional pollution problems and things addressed by the Clean Air Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, toxics, and uh, the Endangered Species Act. And so I will just say that when, when I was a child growing up in California, owing to DDT, I didn't know what a pelican looked like. And because of whaling, I never saw gray whales. And we put rules, very stringent rules and tools in place to bring back those endangered populations and pelicans are ubiquitous now. And uh, we're, we're doing a pretty good job with the condor and uh, tribal communities here in California are reintroducing them to their lands. And so, you know, I do feel like when we, when we have a challenge, we typically know how to face it. But the problem with climate is that it's largely invisible. An indicator species is is a lot more visceral for people. The polar bear hasn't quite worked as well as as you know sort of the climate species, but we are now seeing directly, I think globally, the impacts that climate's having. And even um, among sort of you know staunch conservative communities, they may not call it climate, but they know something's happening to their soil. They know the nights are getting warmer, buds aren't setting when they're supposed to, their lands are flooding, and so. When we start to feel the problem viscerally, we typically do act. I think that's right. I hope you are right that that time is coming. Where do you think Climate Works fits into this mix? The beauty of Climate Works is that uh, you know we try to catalyze endowed philanthropies to you know free more resources to tackle the climate crisis. And we do that in a variety of different ways, um, some of which focus on really thorny uh, de- decarbonization challenges around you know, transportation. We've made great strides on EVs, but what do we do about freight? What do we do about long haul aviation? What do we do about shipping? So those are areas where my talented colleagues help to create awareness, develop strategies to excite philanthropies to put more resources into the space. And so I think that we will continue doing what we do. I feel uniquely privileged that our funder partners decided to enable Climate Works to create a carbon dioxide removal strategy and build the field. I think that was incredibly visionary and courageous. And I feel so honored to, to lead the work on the behalf of our partner philanthropies. It's scary for some traditional climate funders to look at the space because particularly in Europe, uh, there's so much concern about moral hazard. But for the newer funders that are coming into this space, uh, new high net worth individuals, they really want to go to carbon removal because they see it as an under-resourced area. And you know, we help to marshal data and other statistics to help them understand just how terribly under-resourced it is and grow new funders into the space. So that's what we do. And that's how we uh, look to kickstart progress. Carbon removal in the United States, certainly since the IPCC 1.5 degrees Celsius report, pretty mainstream at this point, it feels like here. But the people I know in Europe that I speak with, they have an entirely different experience. Do you have any idea why that might be? That's a great question. And, you know, I think it's multifaceted. You know, on the one hand, they are not as technologically optimistic as we are in the US, perhaps. I think that's one piece of it. I also think that our colleagues in Europe are very, very passionate about the role that natural solutions can play in carbon removal. But they worry that corporations and fossil producers in particular will use carbon removal to avoid phasing out fossil extraction. And they're deeply, deeply concerned about that. Do you think those concerns are well-placed or overstated? Because I lack the unique vantage point of sitting in Europe and observing industry behavior, it's harder for me to say. 
I do know that, and my partners who operate any number of DAX startups, uh, this is no secret to them, but I, I would prefer to think about aviation and other sectors scaling director capture. I would rather see, you know, grow houses scale director capture than director capture be used for enhanced oil recovery. I know that narrative was very popular uh, with the previous administration, but it did a lot of damage, I think, to the perception of DAC with the base. And I think that the Europeans were looking at that very carefully and felt skeptical about that as well. Who exactly was that supposed to appeal to? I guess the oil and gas companies, people, roughnecks, I guess they probably liked the EOR carbon removal angle. I tried to be optimistic about that one, just thinking that them making money off of this. It's not the greatest place to end, but it might be an okay place to start. But then other people like uh, David Roberts was on the show and thought that you might extend the lifespan of these industries in this pursuit for an extra decade or something. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I think that's the primary concern of our, of our colleagues across the pond. Yeah. Well, then you, yeah. Hmm. I feel like people don't really like oil companies in the United States very much either, though. No, and, you know, I think if one were clever, uh, you know, one could construct a kind of a quid pro quo regulation. You know, that's what the Toxic Substances Control Act banned substances that were harmful to humans and, you know, driving diminished populations of animal species. And sometimes it really does take a carrot and a stick. And so... You know, I don't think it has to be moral hazard. I think that there would, there could conceivably be ways where you incent DAC by putting a binding requirement on fossil extraction numbers, and you you don't need to retrain an oil worker who's been taking oil out of the ground too much. I don't think, and maybe I'm getting way out of my depth here, to harness the same infrastructure to take CO2 and stick it back in the ground. Just not force, just not use the CO2 to force EOR back up. Got it. So are you favorably disposed towards something like a carbon take back obligation? Uh, well, it's relatively new to me, but it could be as simple as if you mobilize a ton of carbon dioxide, you must demobilize a ton of carbon dioxide. That's if you're going to use it at all. You have to remove yeah. It. yeah. 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 You just like it. You say, yes, let's do it. Well, I, you know, I, I think about something, you know, a little bit more, you know, draconian where it's um, where you don't have license to continue to pollute, but uh, it, it's more uh, the atonement of past emissions, right? So it would be a carbon take back obligation, but for your historic emissions as well. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, Microsoft's heading that direction. That's right. I imagine others will be too. God, some of those companies that are highly emittive, that sounds onerous. If that was on your balance sheet, it might just crush your company though, I think. Well, not if you could set up a system that would compensate you for doing it. Yeah, that's true. People also complain about that too. And that's not that the complaints are ill-founded, but that they're going to make money off of cleaning up their past mistakes. Jan, I thought you cared about justice. How could you support that? (laughs) Well... I don't think necessarily if the jobs go to frontline communities and that activity is done in such a way where it doesn't pose disproportionate risks to the workers in that sector, that it would necessarily be unjust, right? If we took the entire sort of petrochemicals industry in Texas and Louisiana and over time converted it from an extractive production industry into one that takes CO2 out of the atmosphere, turns it into products and where appropriate locks it away in geologic formations. I don't necessarily see that as being a bad thing. I also keep seeing discussion of carbon removal and frontline communities, especially from Carbon 180. They should probably come back on for an update too. It's been a while. Could you maybe sum up what exactly people mean by that and what the relation between these two things are? Our experience with the cap and trade system and and with offsets, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, led us to understand that the more groups that are at the table at the early stage of a conversation about a climate intervention, I think the greater likelihood that the intervention will actually translate into action. 
And so Carbon 180 has been working with any number of frontline communities to start to build those bridges and provide resources and multiple languages so that we can hopefully create more voices in the carbon removal conversation and also build greater understanding of the perceived opportunities and challenges associated with removal. I don't think I asked you that many easy questions today, Jan. <laughs> no, you haven't. That was a softball. That was a softball. Yeah. <laughs> we're, yeah. And we're, we're very, we're very proud of Carbon 180's work in that space because it started in 2019 and wasn't just, the work was well underway before the events of last year. Certainly was. No, Carbon 180 has had a lot of leadership in the kinds of conversations that happen within carbon removal. And uh, I think they're a great place for people to go and catch up on that too. Because I think linking environmental justice and carbon removal, I'm trying to remember before Carbon 180 started dealing with it. I don't know. I guess Holly Jean Buck's been on that for a long time, I suppose. She has. And our partner at ClimateWorks, who's with the Climate and Land Use Alliance, Tracy Johns, has been making, I think, very important grants to youth voices. We're planning a workshop with representatives from indigenous communities and has been, you know, funding other groups worldwide and, and with the point of, you know, bringing other voices into this dialogue, which is really important. So I would say that it's, it's imperative on the land conversation, uh, particularly, uh, as well as on the technological side. Beyond the basic, pretty obvious concerns that carbon removal, if not done correctly, could actively harm people. So set that one aside for a second. I think there's also a really big risk if carbon removal isn't done properly that, for instance, I think it's safe to say that Red Plus and avoided deforestation does not have a sterling reputation. And at least part of it is because of some of the land use issues in the global south and the interactions between indigenous peoples and those policies. And we don't want to, I mean, that could discredit for a very long time, quite a lot within carbon removal in that same kind of way. Is that, is that a correct way of understanding this too? Yes. When we first created this carbon removal portfolio, we brought together any number of representatives from our global network. And I remember hearing a very vivid <laughs> presentation from one of our colleagues in Brazil. And he said, look, we don't want to be your your sink, whether it's you know for avoided emissions, avoided deforestation, or afforestation vis-a-vis carbon removal, and that stuck with me ever since uh, because I, I I realized the enormity of the challenge, and I think people who have been working for years and years just on the avoided deforestation piece, with all of the complexities around communities that rely on uh, the forests and the lands for their livelihood. It's a very tough challenge, particularly sitting in the global north to go to the global south and, and tell people how their land can and can't be used. It's a very uh, thorny and, and vexing challenge. And so I, one of the ways in which philanthropy addresses it is by a very decentralized global network of grant making to get a better understanding of needs on the ground. But that's still highly imperfect. <laughs> oh, well, sure. And, and even if we take it out of that context, um, you know, look at what's happening in Wales, where farmers are being told that they need to give up some of their agricultural land for reforestation. It's not being well received. Mm. If those stakeholders were brought in earlier, as you've alluded to a few times, do you think we would have done things with them differently? Or would we have chosen approaches that wouldn't have included them at all? <sighs> If they were brought in earlier, we probably would have not chosen approaches that they would find. It would have taken a lot longer to get to the solution because there would have been a lot more discussion. But I don't think that any of these solutions can be imposed by sort of fiat or eminent domain, right? <laughs> there will be a terrible backlash. Uh, just look at the protests, the, the, the yellow vest protests in France, for instance. Yeah, that, that did not seemingly go very well. 
Yeah, I think so. That validates, as far as I can tell, the Biden administration's thesis of focusing on jobs, getting buy-in, having these conversations, having a eminent place for justice discussions in all of this. So it seems like some of these lessons have been learned. It seems like it. Uh, you know, we there's always... <laughs> There's always so much more room for learning, for growth, and for improvement as the events of last year and ongoing events are demonstrating. I think it takes 250 times of uh, repeating something for the average human brain to to learn something. So (laughs) progress is slow and sometimes we slip backwards, but I think broadly in looking at any number of advancements that we've made around public health, uh, eliminating or driving down steeply certain forms of disease, nutrition, the overall trajectory is is upward. Well, that's a good place to start wrapping up. Jan, if someone wants to follow your work and that of Climate Works, how should they do so? They can go to our website. We have a landing page on the carbon dioxide uh, removal program where we post blogs, grantee reports, and you know other pithy items. Uh, and, and on occasion, we also uh, host webinars and other outreach activities. Very nice. Well, thanks so much for being here with me. I'm so happy that we have your brain working on carbon removal. <laughs> I'm so happy that we have yours. Um, Thank you for the very thoughtful questions. I really appreciate it. I've very much enjoyed our conversation. Me too. And if you're listening and you also enjoyed it, please give us a great rating and review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It means a lot to us, helps us get conversations like this to a greater audience. And thank you so much for listening. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and or Stitcher. It really helps us a lot to get this content to a wider audience. If you think what we're doing is useful, interesting, fun, hopefully all three, we'd certainly appreciate your rating and review. You can keep up with Nori at Nori.com where there is a newsletter. That's Nori.com slash subscribe. There's podcast. There's a whole bunch else. Or you can send us an email at podcast at Nori.com. We are also now on Patreon at patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts if you'd like more content, engagement, and community. And thank you so much for your support.